Scott Henry McMillan, the Chief Executive Officer at MT Shelter, and welcome to another episode of Sharing the Couch. We're recording today from the lands of Larrakia people here in Darwin, and I'd like to pay my respect to their elders past and present, and also to any other First Nations people who may be watching or listening in today. Welcome. Today, it's a real pleasure to be speaking to Casey Chambers, the Executive Director at Anglicare Australia, who has worked there for the past 15 years. Casey is an accomplished CEO with extensive national experience in government and the community sector. She brings widespread hands-on experience in policy, advocacy, government relations, service provision, community development, corporate governance, and finance. Her past roles include manager communications and government relations at Uniting Care Australia, assistant secretary in the Australian Government Department of Family, Community Services and Indigenous Affairs, Executive Director, YWCA of Canberra, and Senior Policy Advisor with ACOS. She was also Executive Officer of the Resource Unit for Children with Special Needs in Western Australia. Casey has had numerous board positions, including as member of the Not-for-Profit Sector Reform Council and the Public Affairs Commission of the General Synod. Casey holds an Honours Degree in Psychology, a Master's in Business Administration, and a Graduate Diploma in Ethics and has undertaken the strategic perspectives in non-profit management course at Harvard. Welcome Casey Chambers to Sharing the Couch. <laughs> Thank you, that's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, can, can I start by acknowledging that I'm on the lands of the Ngunnawal people and pay my respects to their elders past and present to, and also to those of the Narragon and the Gambri people who traded on and passed through these lands and, and to all First Nations people who might be listening or watching this, um, this broadcast. Casey, thanks for joining us. And um, I'm really curious as to your pathway to be uh, chief executive, or to be executive director at Anglicare Australia, having had a background, I understand it, in veterinary management, <laughs> farm management early on, as we <laughs> talked about before we came on air, and I guess also, um, you know, professional qualifications in in psychology and, and elsewhere. Um, what was the pathway for you when, when I guess, when you were leaving school and wanting to to go to university? What was going through your mind as to what you wanted to do back in those days? But my pathway from, from the veterinary area to this was very simple. Um, I was basically too thick to be a vet, which is what I started to want to be. And um, whilst I had the, the practical skills, I, I didn't have the nows to get the, the four A's in physics, chemistry, biology and maths that, that you needed. Um, and so I did psychology uh, because I was very... I'm absolutely fascinated in, in how we how we work, basically. And while I was at university doing psychology in, in Liverpool, I um, took up some voluntary work and I worked in what was called, and this is just the most dreadful name, and, and as, as I've done more thinking, I've realised how, how bad this was, but it was called the Crypt Night Shelter in Liverpool. It was in the crypt of the Catholic Cathedral there. And it was working with homeless men. Um, we had beds for about 52 homeless men in one great big dormitory. Um, it was the real basic wrong of now looking back what I realise. Uh, the men came in, were admitted from 6 to 6.30 in the evening and then couldn't leave until 9 the next morning. Um, they would farewell their women folk. There was no homelessness provision at that level for women in Liverpool at that time. And the women would often sleep rough in the, in the grounds of the cathedral and things. Um, but that probably ignited in me, um, you know, a, a passion for thinking about, well, well, where are we with the people who have absolutely nothing? And probably kickstarted me along that way of, of a more 
people-focused career. Um, so when I finished my degree, I worked in another homelessness um, hostel, which was uh, specifically for people who were homeless on release from prison or statutory care, uh, including what we now know as out-of-home care. Went from there to drugs and alcohol, from there to disability, um, and then sort of started to climb the greasy pole of management as well. So that was all hands-on until then. Emigrated to Australia, and um, yeah, he, here I am now. Um, and it's a very privileged position to be in because I find myself able to be talking with practitioners and people who are experiencing services um, about services that I've done hands-on, that I've run, and then talking into government about those services and about the situations people find themselves in and why those services do and don't work. So it's um, when I when I looked at my career a couple of years ago, I thought, gosh, I've been I've been dotted around because um, there's been other bits and pieces as well. But now when I look at it, it, it leads me, I think, very clearly to here and it makes a very sensible journey and does enable me to really give some, I guess, uh, you know, to tell, to assist in telling those stories into federal government and assist in making those voices heard. I see uh, you said you came from England or from the UK. Uh, did you come straight to Western Australia? Is that the job you had working with uh, children with disability or did you do something else? Yeah, you... I, I came and did the, you know, the, um, the bought the combi, did the year. Um, I worked on a gold mine in the Northern Territory. I worked on a manganese mine in Western Australia. I worked on um, a dive boat out of Cairns. I picked apples in the Huon Valley in Tasmania and I worked on a racehorse stud in Victoria. So I do congratulate myself on doing the right places with that one um but yeah then when I came back out to settle I I did settle in um, WA and started with what was called the resource unit for children with special needs which was really around very young children um, in early childhood settings and really assisting those settings to be welcoming um, and appropriate for all children, including those with disabilities, including children from um, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, and including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. I'm interested, Casey, having come from the United Kingdom and uh, and doing work of a similar nature in, in Australia when you did settle down into, into professional work, um, whether there are any differences in, I know the cultures between Australia and the United Kingdom are quite similar in many respects, but mm -hmm. there may be differences in terms of the way poverty is perceived or, or tackled. Did you notice anything different when you came to work professionally in Australia in terms of the way, I guess, people consider um, poverty or disadvantage and, and expectations of what can be done for people in those situations? I think... That's a really interesting question. So I'm, I'm answering it off the cuff in a way because I haven't answered it before. And so I do apologise that these are my observations and, and, and may not be true or correct. Um, I was really horrified when I came to Australia the first time. I came with my understanding that this was a land that had been in, inhabited for many thousands, tens of thousands of years by First Nations peoples. Um, and when I got here, not every white person seemed to share that, that view. Um, and I was really shocked that a lot of 
even services for um, First Nations people seem to be similar to services for migrants um, and seem to almost seem to be treating people as just different racially rather than this absolutely, to me, fundamental difference, which is that you haven't arrived in a different country. You've had other people arrive in your country and change it on top of you. Um, and that seemed to me to be a really big difference in, in how we how we operated. Um, in Britain, we didn't have that same kind of, um, I guess, uh, you know, flavor. Um, but it really, it really struck me that whilst I had that view, a lot of other people, including many officials, didn't. And, um, you know, I had lots of conversations with officials um government officials whereby it was a you know we've got to look after the different racial groups um whereas as i say i, I felt it was a different thing to be colonized and to be taken over than it was to simply only be a different racial group and I'm, i don't want to downplay what it is like there to be a different racial group in, within a, a main society but um it didn't seem to take uh, I guess consideration of that in, in how we work. I, I do think that's changing now, latterly. Um, what else was different? It did take me a long time to get my head around all the different levels of government, I have to say. Um, I was probably lucky to land in Western Australia in that, you know, in, in Western Australia, we are different. It is different, you know? Um, and uh, so the state government does play, it, it, it just felt, it feels like a slightly different state. And because it has that, you, you do get used to thinking about state government and Commonwealth government and local government. But um, that's probably the, the two things that really stand out for me. I do have to say also, I'm very conscious that in moving to Australia, there were a lot of moves going on for me. So I moved from Britain to Australia. I moved from my 20s to my 30s. I probably moved from almost a working class background to almost a middle class way of living. Um, and I moved from hands-on to management. So there were a lot of things that, that were changes for me at that time. So in, in talking about them, I can never really view, is that the difference between Australia and Britain or the difference between a rural community and finding myself in a metro community or the difference between management and, and, and coalface. So I, I do have to acknowledge that. Casey, also, I guess I'm mentioning that you landed in WA and your previous work um, uh, with mining as well um, in the lead up to that. I guess it's interesting also in WA about the royalties for regions scheme that they have and the notion that there is that investment stream from Lotteries West into, uh, I guess, social infrastructure, uh, whether they be things like youth foyers or, or, or just simple bridges or accessibility uh, infrastructure. That plays quite a, another important source of, I guess, uh, funding for, for helping uh, tackle disadvantage and access to, to services and things that maybe some of the other states don't have. Do you, do you have any thoughts in terms of the way they do that sort of stuff in Western Australia? Is there that kind of that licence to operate that mining companies have as part of royalties and diverting some of that revenue back into social infrastructure? Yeah, I probably have to confess a um, uh, it's not it's not a conflict of interest, but my first job was funding funded by the Lotteries Commission, so my oh, first right. Australian professional job as opposed to mining and, and farm handing and things. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that part of WA is or that part of WA um, structure and culture is really envied by the rest of the country. Um, 
you know, there are always those concerns. I, I've done a lot of work in the UK uh, with money from the Guinness Foundation, um, which, you know, you can see as it's money from alcohol, uh, it's going to a good place, but is it coming from harm? I'm not picking out the, the Guinness Foundation now, I'm picking out any of those. Um, and, you know, we can have arguments or we can have conversations about what extent uh, the Lotteries Commission encourages gambling. It was always interesting to me that it, it didn't encompass some of those more harmful forms of gambling of um, pokies. Um, they were illegal in Western Australia. Probably the only area I ever agreed with Premier um, Richard Court on. Um, and of course, we didn't have online gambling then either, uh, which is becoming a, a massive, a massive problem. But certainly the Lotteries Foundation and Commission when I worked there um, was very, very helpful. It was, there was a lot more co-design. Um, we probably didn't call it that then, uh, but in terms of listening and working with the sector and thinking about what, what went in. Um, we had a wonderful network across WI of what were called Lotteries Houses. The organization I ran had um, uh, you know, some small one worker projects in Karath, Port Hedland, um, Geraldton, Albany. It's very hard to be a one worker model. Lotteries Houses really assisted with that. You had a lot of single workers you know you might have one for the resource unit for children's special needs you might have one for down syndrome western australia you might have one for the make a wish foundation um not only could they actually offer each other some security and safety and, and knowledge that someone else in the building um and share boardrooms and things it, it really did i guess incubate some good relationships so those lotteries houses were a really um a, a jewel in the crown i think and something that we have you know, we would not do ourselves any harm to emulate in other places, regardless of the funding, that hub model. Um, particularly, we didn't, the Lotteries Houses haven't really done it, but I would love to see them around some form of um, a community centre, you know, whether that be a long daycare or a playgroup that's used at other times for men's sheds, you know, that kind of thing with then that, that Lotteries House arrangement around them. That's something I think that particularly regional communities could really, really benefit from, from having in their community. Absolutely, it's certainly got a, a part to play and it kind of strikes me a little bit of interest that um, uh, the role that that plays in getting things built or provided that might not happen otherwise from government alone. I'm curious about the role that government plays and increasingly, I guess, conversation these days about finding other forms of funding, whether it be institutional investors, or elsewhere and and i guess backing going back a little bit from that is, is some of the things that you said before about australian uh, views or attitudes to i guess people in poverty and that you know over time in australia we seem to be increasingly comfortable with the idea that people can be left behind uh as you compared to the 19th century notion of the deserving and deserving poor being revived I do also sense that from time to time in, in terms of two-speed economies and, and, and the like that you've also commented on. Um, what's happening in Australian society at the moment, do you think, in terms of the way people are feeling about homelessness or poverty and whose role they see as, as addressing that and fixing it? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is one of the other differences I forgot to mention when you asked me the question earlier about the difference between, or some of the differences I perceive between Britain and um, Australia. 
you know, Australia can view itself in white terms as a new a new country or a newish country, a young country. Um, and so I think sometimes there's more of that sense of anyone can achieve anything um, and therefore a sense that if you're not achieving something, you're to blame for it. Um, so I do sometimes sense more of a, a sense of that. Um, I always find it disappointing that we waste good crises. And um, during my time in Anglicare, we've had, I just started when we had the global financial crisis. Now we've just had the pandemic. Uh, during those times, we do seem to realize that we're all in this together. We have a greater sense of that. We do seem to grow a greater sense of our own frailty and vulnerability that many in the middle in particular are only one paycheck or two paychecks or one relationship breakdown or you know one misrental payment, whatever it is. Um, I do have a sense that we're moving quite quickly away from that as we pull out of the pandemic, that we forget some of the compassion that we have in, you know, that we, we grow during those times. Yeah, we had a sense that um, essential workers, they weren't the bankers, they weren't the hedge funders, they were the, there's a supermarket. Um, shelf fillers, they were the nurses, they were the aged care workers, they were the, you know, the, the transport workers, they, they really are the people who are the lowest paid, who we see um, constantly with vulnerabilities in the housing market. Um, there was a sense of that here and in Britain, people clapped the NHS, people, you know, we, we stood out, I don't know what it was, did people stand out and put their dustbins out on a particular night and kind of um, show, show solidarity for aged care workers and things. Um, I fear that we're moving back away from that uh, and I fear that we're moving back to that sense that, you know, um, people's poverty is their own issue. I do think that most of us here in Australia don't actually know um, how little people get through welfare benefits. So there is a sense, I think, that as Australians, we have a, a weird kind of jealousy of people who might be on welfare benefits. So there's a strange envy that if we actually talk to people about, did you know that, um, you know, job seeker is this amount per year? Did you know that this is the, the kind of level? Most people don't realise that. And I think there's a role for us in the sector to keep on rather than just talking about job seeker or the age pension to talk about what those amounts are, because um, what we've found is that mo in, in our survey work is that most people don't know how little they are. And when they do find out how, how, how little those benefits are, they do tend to change their attitudes slightly and, and you know, more over time as to how people on welfare benefits should get extra help. Mm. So I do think there's, you know, the, the attitudes to poverty that we have, I think, tend to be a little bit blameworthy. Um, but I think that we can do a lot of work around that in just um, letting people know, you know, that nobody on job seekers having surfing holidays, no one's sitting there having steak every night. It's just not possible. No. And it's interesting also, isn't it, for those of us who work in the sector, when we hear stories, when we meet people, when we get an understanding of why people are in mm -hmm. poverty, we develop a better appreciation of people's, I guess, backstories and and how they've got to that point, and it's and it's it's, it's understandable and explainable, and um, maybe still there's a, I guess it's what people are connected to, what they're reading, and and whether they know people in those situations, whether yeah. there's that empathy or simply a, a concept that you wrote about 
uh, in the conversation back in 2015, I, I found really um, interesting. And that was uh, where you refer to the double meaning of care. Uh, can you maybe explain for us what, what, what you're referring to then? Um, gosh, 2015 seems like a long time ago. <laughs> and, and I clearly haven't done the same research for this that you have. Um, but I, I think that there's there's a couple of things there. I mean, one is I, I did want to just say that I think all societies are changing and we do have a greater ability to now pick who we talk to, we don't have incidental conversations quite so much. So we don't know people who aren't like us as much. And I think, you know, knowing people who aren't like us, knowing um, people who are living long job seek and knowing people who have a different political opinion to us, uh, knowing people who are having a hard time does help. I, I do think that that helps our empathy. Um, 2015, wow. So I think, you know, that there's, I'm, um, I'm just trying to struggle. This is where we talked about the, the fabric of society. And is, is that the one? Yeah, where you were referring, sorry, it wasn't meant to be a, to be a no, quiz. No. That's a little bit mean. We don't. I should have done my homework. No, not at all. No, we're referring to Australians uh, care on one level about the plight of Australians, perhaps by, um, I guess, reading an article, feeling sympathy or empathy, maybe engaging with a social um, media post. But that's that's one side of care, but the other side um, actually taking action um, to affect um, real change, and 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 I guess people taking that next step as to doing something about it that yeah. can lead to real change. Yeah, and I think I think for me that is about owning some of those issues. You know, we do need to deeply feel them. We it is a bit easy to push a, a like or um, a support or vote something up, um, to actually do something about it can be much harder. Uh, and, you know, it, it is much harder to stop and have a chat with someone, to bring them into your life, to start to understand their life when it may be very, very different to, to ours. Um, and I think we that is something that we do need to do. Um, like I say, it, it is very easy to not know people um, you know, to have no one in your social circle who isn't like you. Uh, we, we, you know, our suburbs are built around being able to drive your car straight from the road, virtually into your house, because uh, the garage is attached to your house. You don't necessarily have to talk to your neighbours. You don't have to talk to someone on the bus next to you, those kind of things. And that's not to say that we we always did that and it was always better. But certainly I think that there is more of a difficulty for us now, even if we genuinely want to know and get out and know lots of different people. Um, but to actually take that care and to take that responsibility, I do, I do think that there is um, an issue, even with democracy, we, we have been schooled in the last four years, I believe, to think that democracy is having a vote every three years and using that. Um, I think that makes us very lazy, and I think it drops responsibility. The public, and, and I think, you know, our, um, our you know, larrikin kind of um, conversation about our politicians, that's politics, that's Canberra, that's whatever. Um, on the one hand, that's fun and, and that kind of level of disrespect and, and evenness is quite an Australian characteristic and that's great. But on the other hand, by saying that, we are actually letting people off. And, um, you know, if we live in a democracy, we need to own those politicians. We need to be responsible for their behaviour and we need to be responsible for much more than just voting every 
every four or three years. Uh, we really do need to take care, know what's going on, um, take the care to actually look at what things are like for people. You know, what what is it like for um, two 15-year-olds, one who is finishing school in Mullumboy and one who is finishing school in Surrey Hills? You know, what what's happening there? Um, I was very, very touched by my colleague, and I know he's he's previously set up sat on this uh, this virtual couch. But um, Dave Pugh, who retired at the end of last year, he he made a very um, insightful or comment, which was that he was the same age as Archie Roach. Archie mm -hmm. Roach had just passed away, and Dave was looking forward to the next third of his life in retirement. Um, that That is simply the difference because some of where people came from and where they were born. And that was the point Dave was making, I believe. Um, and I think, you know, people getting a handle on that, that this isn't luck that we have built ourselves. This isn't something that we have been entitled to because we somehow um, graduated year 12. This has been a lottery that put us in the, you know, in a family that had access to a school that did year 12, or this, this is, you know, this is inherited wealth almost that has enabled us to do many of these things. So I do think that's the kind of care and responsibility we need to take, which is probably not quite what I said in 2015, but that's probably my evolving thoughts around that. And I've certainly been thinking a lot about the nature of democracy and and that kind of um our responsibility as as ants in that process that we have a lot of responsibility for that democratic um well-being it's, it's very interesting isn't it and i guess if we look at the the term you know that the canberra bubble i mean it's we, if there is such a bubble it needs to be broken down doesn't it, it, it it's just like a lot of us in real life maybe live in our own bubbles um uh, disconnected from what's happening for mm -hmm. Aboriginal Australian First Nations people or, or people in regional areas, for example, uh, we're all really connected. And I guess these constructs of bubbles are really isolating um, people and thinking from reality, really, when we when we look at that connectedness. And, um, and absolutely for people uh, representing their constituencies going down to Canberra to make policy that affects Australian's lives, mm. um, it's really important not to go into a bubble environment by nature is detached from reality, really. Yeah. So it's, it's fascinating. Um, Casey, I'd like to uh, turn to Angle Care Australia and um, uh, maybe just get you to tell us a little bit about Angle Care Australia and then I'd like to focus a little bit, if we can, on the work that you do um, at Angle Care Australia and across the Angle Care Network in speaking up for the mm. people that you um, work with through policy and advocacy, but 15 years is quite some time in Anglicare Australia in, in, that, in that role. Um, obviously, there's a lot of um, things that really uh, uh, are satisfying to you and rewarding to you and, and no doubt challenging in the work that you're trying to undertake there. Um, can you tell us a bit about Anglicare Australia for those of us who might not be familiar with the Anglicare structure? Sure. I mean, the, the biographical detail on it is really that um, it's 34 individual organisations. They are all each individually governed. They have grown from their communities um, and they do many different 
things, um, but they come together through a sense of who they are, of the values that they have, and they form a network called Anglicare Australia. Um, together, that network's quite large. It has quite a good, quite a broad footprint. There's very few communities that we don't um, have a presence in, that we don't partner with. Um, it's about 29,000 staff and volunteers, for example. One in 19 Australians use our services, services at some stage. Um, but it really comes together out of a sense that there is more than providing good service. That's really important. Uh, if we're going to do something, we need to do it well. Um, we can always do it better, but there is a real need to provide service to people that recognizes them as individuals, that says to them, you are cared about, that says to them, you are here, you are recognized. We know your name, uh, something as simple as that. Um, but we come together to be to, to go further than that, to talk about why it is that we need to do services in the first place. Um, you know, there'll always be a need for a quick trampoline, that night shelter I spoke of when I first started work. The idea of that was it was for people who missed the train home or needed two nights accommodation here or there. It wasn't that. By the time I got there, um, you know, it had been in operation for many, many years, and it was actually where people lived full time. Um, so... For Anglicare, we, we're there, we exist as well, to really be thinking about why is it that these services are needed? How could these services be changed? How can we actually change society so we build it better? Uh, and so that's what actually really um, brings us together. Our kind of catchphrase, um, or my little catchphrase, is that we've got national strength, but local responsiveness. So each individual organisation that's within the Anglicare family has grown with different service responses to different groups of people in what they saw as the need at different times. Uh, but together, we, we come together to really try to um, enable the voices of those who are most disadvantaged to be heard and to actually have conversations and lead thoughts about what would make a more just society. I think it's extraordinary when I read that Anglicare's agency's network works with one in 40 Australians. That's a huge, um, a huge presence in our, across our communities, right across Australia. Um, and also the notion that uh, services are there to, uh, generally funded by Australian governments uh, to deliver programs and services on its behalf, on government's behalf, uh, I guess under a contract or funding arrangement. Um, but also, I guess, the, uh, the the need in your vision to speak out on behalf of the people that you do work with. So I know a lot of non-government organisations might struggle with that around uh, undertaking the, 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 the front end um, grind of supporting people in the doing the tough yards, but also um, maybe um, getting caught, caught up working in that um, service delivery space, maybe not seeing it either as their role or maybe seeing it as perilous to be speaking out um, around what's needed and maybe even being a bit critical. How do you, Anglicare does seem to do that quite well, but how do you, how do you, I guess, juggle that um, the risk of being uh, too, I guess, critical or aggressive around what needs to be done, especially when you see things that aren't effective? Um, versus, I guess, getting on and um, and and doing your day-to-day um, -day service delivery work across Australia. How do you juggle those, I guess, competing tensions? 
I, I think that is an ongoing tension for all of our organisations. I am very, very lucky in that um, we are funded by our network to, to really do some of that work. Um, there is a balance. I mean, I, my own view is that in taking that voice and, and being, I guess, um, trusted with that voice, that we make sure that it is really well evidenced that we build evidence, uh, that we bring stories, um, that if possible, we enable people to speak for themselves, but where, where that uh, might not be possible or where the, the story of one person doesn't actually tell the whole kind of story, that we bring those together and build evidence. Um, there's a sense for me that, you know, there, there's, it's, it's about civil engagement. I don't believe that anyone is in politics for any bad reason. Uh, everybody wants to, to do the best, I think. It's it's contrary to some popular opinion. It is not well paid. If you work to get done an hourly rate, it isn't well paid. Uh, and I think people are here for, for the best of intentions. Um, so for us to, to do that, it's about respecting that. It's about enabling people to, without challenging them. I think you can paint people into corners and you'll never get them back out of there. So it's about taking evidence. It's about working with people to understand what it is that systems are doing. It's about not placing blame. Um, it's, I guess the, the same sporting analogy is play the ball, not the person or something. Um, so it's always that. But it does mean that there are times where we will disagree with the side of politics that might believe we should be on their side. That can be difficult. Um, but what we do very clearly is we're very clear about what we think would work. We've got the evidence to show that, and that's what we just stick by. Uh, and then we can we can judge policies. We can judge um, things that come in after that. We can judge budgets uh, and, and things against that. So there is that sense of, of um, making sure that you, you know, that you do know that you're on solid ground. And one of the things we try to do is to never, ever be an ivory tower think tank. We do not stick our necks out anywhere where we don't have the, the evidence from the expertise of the people that we work with, you know, uh, th those people are experts in their own stories and their own lives. That that's that's really um, what we use to to build that evidence. The other thing is that certainly for for Anglicare, and you know, we're, we're not alone in this, but for Anglicare especially as as a charity that has a, a faith base uh, and a philosophy. This isn't about providing the best hotel room, you know. Um, that, that's really important. I just got back from, from a holiday, you know. And, and it's great when people are after doing the best that they can do. Um, I'm sitting today at the supermarket. The, the man who runs that supermarket, it's really important to him to have the best fresh produce at the best times. This is something different to that. This isn't just about offering the best aged care experience. Of course it's that. But it's also about talking about why, why do we need to do this? Why, why is it that we have to have the best homelessness hostels for young people? Why is it that we need to be thinking about how we work with um, young people from First Nations families who find themselves in out-of-home care? What, what is it that's behind that? What could we do differently so that that doesn't happen? And I guess it fits very, very neatly um, with the Anglican Church's 
two of their marks of mission around loving service, which is clearly, you know, making sure what we do is good and recognises the individual. It's not, you know, it's not just about that, that service. But actually the, the one that I find myself most engaged with is calling out on just structures and challenging those. And so that's that part of that, that advocacy work. Um, I think, you know, I, I've said that we're nonpartisan. I've said that we play the ball, not the person. But the last government, the um, the Morrison government, it was very hard to work with as charities. There was clearly a bit of a, a war on charities, and and that fact of being able to stick our heads again above the parapet. We were very lucky. Our board and our membership said, "Keep doing that." Um, and as we're seen as a bit more of an establishment charity than some, so we were able to do that. But it strikes me as a very weak um, government or a very weak leader that doesn't want to hear constructive criticism. Um, and so I would challenge any government to, to listen to charities. Uh, we are often on the ground with people. We can breathe in and out pretty quickly. And you know, we're often the fabric of a local community as well. Those lotteries houses that we talked about earlier, they have boards of ordinary local people. Um, they might be service users, but they might also just be people that live in the house nearby. That's the way that we can better uh, tie up our democracy and tie those politicians back in. So I do think this is a very weak leadership that doesn't want that kind of criticism. And it is down to us who, who sit in that role of advocacy to make that advocacy uh, hearable and understandable in ways that um, isn't easy to bat off. So strong evidence, a strong voice, but not combative. I think you probably captured some of the elements of this already, but I know that there's an appetite for um, member organisations that we work with to want to co-design programs and work closely with government as partners. Uh, I know at times that might be seen as risky, and I know you've worked in, in government before in senior roles and obviously in the, in the community sector. Can you just run through maybe some of the competing um, risks from both sides, perhaps, as to why that might be good in theory but might be difficult to pull off effectively, that really working as trusted partners on, on reform, whether it be homelessness reform, where we're working through um, a, an evidence-based way of restructuring service delivery um, or some other form of, of reform. The intention seems to me to be there. That those of us who work, I guess, uh, with people directly um, who have that first-hand knowledge and experience and government, on the other hand, who I guess has, um, has to work within an authorising environment as well. How can we, I guess, proceed regardless of trust, whether the trust's there or not, whether those relationships are as strong as they could be otherwise. Have you got any thoughts around that, how we can, how the sector can work effectively with government, what an effective model might look like? I, I think, I mean, I think there are some intrinsic difficulties in that relationship. Um, it is an uneven partnership and we need to, we need to acknowledge that, uh, you know, one side has the money and the other side doesn't. Um, the, the need for um, probity and things for government often looks like a, a lack of transparency to the other side. Uh, and so that, that, you know, that there are those difficulties. And I think we have to name them up. I think, I think not, not admitting the elephant in the room doesn't help us. So I think we, we need to name those. I think it's a good time to name those. Um, you know, the public service is coming out of a, a long time now where it has been devalued 
where its advice has not been sought and where really its role has been run down and a lot of the, the work has been outsourced to private companies. We've got accounting companies who now own most of the knowledge about what Australians think about X, Y, or Z, or, or how a program worked or didn't work. And we've got public servants who are very good at managing contracts and haven't had the opportunity to do, to do a lot of other things. So I do think that there's some opportunity there. Um, there is very, very few people in my experience who have worked in senior levels in both sectors. I was certainly the only one in Faxia at the time. Um, you know, there's a few people, but I think we could do a lot to, to enable that. It's got to be more than a transactional sort of secondment, but that, that's difficult. You, you hit all kinds of difficulties around one service leaving this and that. So we've got to get around that. And in fact, um, I'm having a conversation with the Deputy Secretary shortly about how we, how we can do some of that because I think the time is right. So I do think it's that there's, there's some ripeness of time. Um, the government, the people in the public service can be quite removed from um, the, the people who are utilising those services. This is, you know, what people talk about as being the Canberra bubble, but public servants aren't stupid, you know, and, and so if we've got some ways of building evidence and telling stories and, and getting that information in, that, that's probably our responsibility to, um, to do, definitely. There is also a sense, and, and again, it comes back to some conversations about democracy, there's still quite a sense of gotcha moments. And so if you are living in fear of those, it's quite hard to work in a collaborative way. Um, and so I think, you know, government does need to stand back a little bit, government and opposition, and, and have some joint goals. Uh, I, know that, I know that's pretty hard, but I know when I was in government, Senate estimates were seen to be the big you know, the big performance area, um, and you really didn't need, want to let anything slip, um, which doesn't really help the opposition. If, if we're talking about, let, let's be honest, let's look at what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, let, let's have some ideas about how we could do that better. Um, so I think there's, there's some real cultural things which do drive this divide. Uh, there are some real elephants in the room that are about unevenness. So I think we, you know, in acknowledging both of those, we can then come and say, okay, what can we bring? What can you bring? And how do we, you know, how, how can we, how can we best now devise a service uh, that fits people's needs and a service that we can understand where it has its effect? You know, which bit do we need to dial up a bit? At possibly low cost and get some good results which bits you know we could dial up and put as much money in as we wanted but it's not going to drive much improvement um but you know if we could come to understand those things then that that would be that would be really really helpful so i think co-design is a great way forward i think we've just got to be careful that we don't see it as as the next sort of um you know panacea call everything by it um and and yeah, ignore what real true co-design is because co-design if we do it properly as everyone watching this will know it's really hard work we can't ever say we've done it we can't say we've ticked it off we need to keep going back and keep looking at what we're doing right what we're doing wrong are we talking to the right people um are we talking to someone who went through the service five years ago or are we only talking to people in it at the time yeah all those kind of questions so 
I do think there's some stuff we can do. I think the time is right. Um, you know, Prime Minister Albanese has talked about reinvigorating the public service. Um, and I, I, I really do hope that that, that that happens in a meaningful way. And I think it can do. And I think we in the sector can assist that. Um, but I do think we need to all be aware that there are different pressures uh, and that, you know, we probably, if we want to do this, need to stop watching the news of a night time for the gotcha moments because they're, they're not compatible with this form of uh, working together. Absolutely. And Casey, also, this nature of um, uh, co-opetition that I've, I've heard used sometimes in terms of public bay or public sector where uh, organisations are competing for funding, but we also need to collaborate together to get outcomes for clients. That can be a, a tricky space sometimes for organisations to, to work through. As a leading uh, national organisation, Angler Care, could you talk a bit, a bit about the importance, I guess, for our sector, whether it be in housing and homelessness or in disability or, or, or other uh, sectors? How organisations can, I guess, um, where they should position themselves in terms of being collegial and collaborative with others who may be competing for the same grant funding next time around. How do you do that? I think it's really, really hard, you know, and I've, I've been that CEO a couple of times in those kind of places. Um, it's very difficult. You might, you know, we've had, for example, most anger care agencies put their hand on their heart and said that they wouldn't go for any employment service money a few years ago when, when the Howard government, um, you know, brought the breaching in and stuff with it. In doing that, they lost a lot of uh, capacity to impact and work with people of a working age. Um, other charities didn't stick by that. Um, you know, people make different choices. Um, so I think there is some difficulty in, in doing that. I think it is a, a, there is an onus on us as a sector to work with the government and again, help them to understand that this is not, we're not just providers of government services. We have our own identities. We have our own reasons for existence. We are not simply here to give them the best hotel room. Um, you know, I keep using hotel rooms because it's transactional. It's something we all use. Um, but we're not simply here to do that. We all have our own reason for being. And there is a fabric that the not-for-profit and charitable sector gives us where it's not just transactional. I guarantee that most people here, if you want to go and find something, you go to a library, you might go and find a not-for-profit group, your kids might be in scouts, um, you know, there's just all sorts of fabric things that hold a community together that are not part of simply getting in funding and spending it on something. And I think that that's something that we really need to work hard to help the government understand. Uh, I know that Minister Lee, Andrew Lee, who um, now has charities in his portfolio, one thing that's very refreshing is he wanted charities in his portfolio. And that, that's great. Um, but, you know, to build that very deep understanding that this is something that in and of itself builds a better community. Uh, so it's not just necessarily that people who are vulnerable come and have a particular service to a playgroup. It's that that playgroup uh, builds lifelong friendships amongst those kids, amongst those parents. It enables us to get into groups of parents and chat about other things, whether it's um, a cancer prevention 
um, scheme that's coming to town the next week or whether it's about, uh, you know, um, pre getting ready for preschool or whatever. It's, there's just a fabric there that takes us outside of pure transactions. Uh, tendering puts us back into those pure transactions. So that, that I guess that's the, the knife edge. Um, I do think that there are possibilities for organisations to form long-term relationships. The, the issue that a lot of organisations seem to come across is that a tender will be called, you might not find it, six weeks at best, and you might not find out about it for a week, you've got to go through all your internal processes. That is not long enough to form a long-term relationship. So my thoughts are always that organisations should be spending time forming those relationships, strengthening the sector in which they sit. You don't get any money for sitting on the NT COS board. Your organization doesn't get paid for that. Um, but in strengthening that sector, I do believe that you will actually, you know, strengthen the fabric of the not-for-profit uh, sector. The issue then is when we have areas like the NDIS or, or packages, you know, user pays kind of systems. Yes, it puts more power into the individual, uh, but it also, you know, you cannot find a way uh, if you're, you, you can't put it into someone's NDIS package that you will sit on the NT COS board or the National Disability Service Board. Um, but that I do believe is part of our responsibility as a sector. We need to be strengthening the sector. We need to be looking at what a strong sector looks like. And individual CEOs, I think it can sometimes be a luxury, but you start having those cups of coffee, you start looking at where you've got uh, your commonalities um, at, at those you can work with. And personally, I would never, ever advise a board I was reporting to to go into a partnership with an organisation that I didn't know really, really well, um, you know, because your reputation, the well-being of your clients, everything is going in on that. And it might work on a six-week contract, a six-week tender process that you've been able to bring your contract together. But I really do think that those, those relationships should have started years ago. Okay, so I think that's really, really well argued. And I think also probably uh, add to that, especially if you're working with an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander organisation, those relationships are going to take time and, and so yeah. it should to build that trust. Uh, you mentioned there uh, un, unpaid work uh, and there's also a lot of, un, I'd probably argue, a lot of underpaid work as well in the sector. When you look at the, the remuneration that, that frontline service staff receive compared to government, Peers, there are big disparities there. It is difficult structurally to attract and retain staff over long periods of time. Um, do you think our sector is, or a better question probably would be, what, what do you think is the prospects for um, better, a better, um, a better, more professionally, better recognised, better funded sector where, where staff maybe are paid uh, or recognise at least remunerated in terms of the value that they bring to the economy, because there are a lot of there are a lot of costs that are avoided by the work that the sector does. Do you think there's still some work to be done to, I guess, um, address uh, what appears to me to be a sector that's maybe a little bit unloved and, and not well understood by government in terms of the work that we do? I I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Peter. I, I really do think that. It's about us being better understood. Um, if people understood the work that was done, and I think people got closer during the pandemic, you know, people actually started to get um, what aged care workers did or, or 
what what you know what it meant. Um, if we could be better understood, we might be better respected and therefore better supported. Um, I do. I do think that the in recent years we we have had a bit of a war on charities. We have had we've had lots of narratives that have been about you know charities are fronts for um, uh, terrorism, they're fronts for um, uh, money laundering, that kind of stuff. There's really almost nothing that could be further from, from the truth. But in putting that narrative out there, it, it does, you know, it obviously um, people hear things and, and they, they, that sticks with them. And that view that the sector has, has been part of that um, has not been helpful. So I think we do need to blow our own trumpet a little bit. I think we do need to make it clearer to people what, what it is doing. You know, it's not just aged care. You don't go into childcare. You, you become an early educator because you have a passion, not just because that's what is left for you, you know. And yet those narratives still sometimes um, sit around. I think it's really important that we're proud of our sector. Um, every single time we do anything, we can see that CEOs are better qualified in our sector than any other sector. There is less fraud in our sector than any other sector, um, and yet people are paid less. So we really do need to, to look at what that work looks like and to, to value it. I do think that there is a bit of a gender lens. You know, much of the work has been seen as female work in the past. Um, and I think it's upon us to say whether it is or it isn't female work doesn't matter. It's actually about paying it, paying it correctly. And I also think that there's a there's a, a narrative that constantly says we should not pay more taxes. That might be something we have to hit head on and say, if this is what the care you want in your older years, if this is the care you want for your grandmother, mother, father, uncle, yourself, um, this is what we'll need to pay for it. Because at the moment, there's, there's a vast schism between what we will, as a country, pay for aged care and what we expect, for example. Um, so I think there's quite a, a lot going on there. And there are, of course, other differentials that often aren't the things that are talked about. So again, to come back to the public service, you know that there are different superannuation models which really put people in very different places. And so it's not just about pay, that there are those, those other areas as well. And I think there's also that other area which you hit upon, which is volunteering. Volunteering is so valuable. It's valuable for the people that benefit from it. It's valuable for the people that do it. Um, right throughout my adult life, I've been a volunteer in so many different areas, and I've got so much out of it. It's not, it's not altruistic. It's completely selfish. I, I've got so much out of it, whatever it is I've done. Um, and yet we have policies which are still driving against volunteering in a way. We still, as maybe not as a community, but as... Um, as, as policy see that a good way to spend your time is in economic development of some sort or other. That could be something that's harmful. It could be producing pornography or hedge fund or something, but that is more valuable than someone who volunteers in an environmental charity or in caring for, for elders or, or whatever it is. And one of my proofs of that is that we have driven in the last couple of years, it has been harder for people to utilise volunteering as a mutual obligation um, for their new start, now job seeker, for example. And yet 
you know, if we're trying to connect people, if we're trying to keep people in work, if we're trying to um, enable people to be part of things, what's better than, you know, my mum in the UK is at a, a charity shop today working. She loves it. Um, and, you know, our, our charity shops, our, our op shops, as we call them here, they would not work without volunteers. Um, and those volunteers get something out of it. And heck, we get a heck of a lot out of it. So that's another part. There's an invisibility of, of much of what the sector does. Similarly, and again, particularly things like parishes will often bring a lot of food to emergency relief services. So we might get money from federal government, we might get money from state government, but we also get a lot of produce and um, I guess in kind from, from, from people. And that comes back to us needing to be respected, needing to be clear about who we are, because you don't see people volunteering to work at Centrelink, you see them volunteering to work you know, with services and with organisations that have a, a core story and a core reason for being. And see, just to uh, finish up, you've, you've written in the past about um, being hopeful, but not necessarily expectant. Um, at, at key times when there were when there were levies that were being looked at um, by the Abbott government, I guess in the past when we've had opportunities to have national housing and homelessness plans or direct investment in social and affordable housing. I remember during COVID, there were so many economists that said, look, the best investment governments can probably do during COVID is to invest in more social and affordable housing and and we've um, instead we spent a lot of money on um, on I guess uh, home improvement initiatives and, and things like that which arguably wasn't money well spent so as we enter 2023 the, the energy is clearly still there I can I can see it uh, and you and the passion uh, it's wonderful after 15 years but but where do you see are you optimistic are you expectant are you hopeful about um, what we're seeing and what we're starting to hear about now, I guess, in terms of housing and tackling housing and homelessness. We haven't talked a lot specifically about that today, but that's OK. I'm just curious as to what you consider to be um, now, I guess, in your 16th uh, year um, as being the prospects for getting some stuff done. Are, are you optimistic? Um I'm always optimistic, partially because I'm a, a little bit stupid. I'm the, the staffy, you know, if you, you have to choose what dog breed you are. Um, but look, I, I do think there's, we need to keep on remind, we, we need to be really clear about what housing is. You know, we, we have a policy system that regards the building of housing. We've asked the, um, the market to take on all the heavy lifting for affordable housing. Uh, and we have policy settings which treat housing as development of wealth. We just need to keep naming that up. It's not about housing, it's about development of wealth. If we talk about housing, we talk about people's need for housing, um, then that becomes a lot, a lot realer, I think. Um, I love being a little bit um, provocative and talking about the welfare benefits that flow through negative gearing and capital gains tax. They are welfare benefits. They're no different. Um, and we did a piece of work a little while ago now. We're, we're about to renew it. And we called it the cost of privilege because we wanted to think about what does it actually cost us as a community to have these choices? Let's be really clear. This is a choice. Let, let's enable, let's put some evidence out there that enables everyone to see what the choice is. Um, I don't think the figures when we do them shortly are going to be any different. What we found was that when we looked at taxes and transfers um, in, in those kind of areas, in uh, private schools, in, in, in um, uh, superannuation concessions to the, the higher end, in uh, 
um, negative gearing and, and capital gains tax. We what what went out, what came together out of that was $138.6 billion. Yeah, it was huge. Six billion flowed to the lowest 20%. Yeah, the rest was right up there. It it, it is, you know, we we with both money and housing, we need to stop even thinking that trickle down could we can anyone can have it in the back of their minds or something. It doesn't work, and that's why we're not talking about supply of housing. If we keep talking about supply of housing, that's about trickle down. We need to talk about social and affordable housing. We need to talk about what housing means to people, what it means to children and those families, um, and we do need to acknowledge that we're making a policy choice. When the pandemic hit, we doubled, um, and I've, I've had a go at Morrison government, so let me give them a bouquet. They doubled job seeker. We raised people out of poverty. And what was most telling for me and the most heartwarming stuff was that people on job seeker started to act like they had a future. We saw people buy a fridge to put their food in. We saw people undertake training because they believed there was a future. We saw people paint their bedroom, uh, their child's nursery. Because there was a future, there was something to, to plan for and look forward to. That's the difference. And I think it's, it's on us to keep on saying, this is a choice. While we choose to put that much money out to the highest income earners, we can't put it here. And I think we need to keep telling that story as we keep on having the debate about stage three tax cuts. Sure, we can do the stage three tax cuts, but it is a choice and let's choose, let's be conscious about the society in the Australia that we want. You've been watching or listening to Casey Chambers, the Executive Director at Anglicare Australia. Just like to also mention that Anglicare Australia um, releases uh, annually a rental affordability snapshot, a jobs availability snapshot, and Australia Fair reports. And Casey referred to evidence base a number of times during the conversation. And just want to mention how important it is that those reports are issued and really put the spotlight um, on areas, whether it be a lack of housing that's affordable for people on low incomes or different income types that we, we generally look at and rely on in, in our advocacy as well. So, Casey, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for the uh, incredibly important work that Anglicare does right across Australia and also that you're doing on a national level to really put an evidence-based spotlight on these issues and uh, ultimately developing a fairer and, and, and better Australia and addressing uh, poverty and, and tackling housing and homelessness and all the myriad of other work that you do across Australia. Thanks again for joining us. Well, thanks, Peter. Thanks for um, thanks for what you're doing and for actually sitting there and using your leadership to make me look a little bit good. So thank you. <laughs> Again, uh, thank you, Casey. And if you uh, want to uh, watch more of our uh, podcast episodes, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Uh, check us out on social, social media uh, or share if you think other people would benefit from conversations like the one we've had with Casey and other ones which are coming up, which we're be very excited to bring you shortly. Thanks again and see you all next time. You've been listening to episode four, season two of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.